The Scottish FA Cup fourth round. Brecon City nil. Dundee United one. Clydebank against Burnian as a late kickoff. Dundee one. Meadowbank Thistle one. Alloa Athletic Airdrieonians. Heart of Midlothian. Hamilton Academical. Queen's Park. Queen of the South. These are names I associate with the Saturday tea times of my childhood when I'd sit down to watch the football results on BBC's Grandstand programme and the mention of Stenhouse Muir and Stirling Albion would conjure up images of... well, images of what exactly? I really didn't know. Scottish League Division 1, Clyde 1, Edrionians 0, the Barton 2, Montrose 1. They sounded exotic, faraway places with a touch of romance and mystery that the more familiar English clubs seem to lack. Scottish League Division 2, Air United 2, Alloa 0. I'm Lionel Burney, and I grew up two doors down from Simon Gill. Hello! As children, our two obsessions were football, and then a little later, cycling. We played and watched football together, and we'd head into the Hertfordshire lanes on our bikes, pretending we were riding the Tour de France. When the pandemic put life on pause, we talked about what we'd like to do when we could travel again. I said I wanted to do a multi-day bike ride of some sort. Simon said he wanted to visit and photograph every Scottish football league ground. We looked at a map and realised we could combine the two ideas. The Tour de Cos was born, the beautiful game on two wheels. There are so many questions to be answered over the course of this series, Will we make it as far as Forfar without falling out? Why are Cowden Beath called the Blue Brazil? What actually is Iron Brew? And do my ancestors really hail from Burnie? Queen's Park nil, Albion Rovers nil. Spelling Albion one, East nil. We're halfway through stage five of the Tour de Cos and we left you last time in Dumbarton, having ridden from Port Glasgow. Now we have to follow the Forth and Clyde Canal back in the direction of the city, cross over the river and head to three football grounds, the homes of St Mirren, Rangers and Partick's Thistle. We're going to get a history lesson on the architecture and industry of Glasgow and I'm going to catch up with an old friend from my early days in cycling magazine journalism. We set out from Port Glasgow where we stayed last night. Uh, Basically Greenock, Inverclyde, Port Glasgow, all kind of one area on the Clyde and we kept off the main roads as we wiggled our way through to the Erskine Bridge, a really imposing structure when you're underneath it and going across it, not the most pleasant ride, but there is a segregated cycle path uh, which we obviously took, kept us away from the traffic, uh, nice big barriers just to give a sense of security and, and keep the wind off us a bit actually because it was whipping across a little bit. Hopefully that means a tailwind as we head into Glasgow when we leave here, Dumbarton. And then we picked up the Clyde and Forth cycle route, the part of the National Cycle Route, and it's beautiful, fantastic. Fresh tarmac, well signposted, again keeping us off the roads, and we saw a little bit of graffiti on one of the bridges which had a, an illustration of a bike and the words, no more pollution, no more congestion. Um, I can certainly endorse that message, even if, you know, well, I think as we look at the graffiti on the side of Dumbarton's stand here, there's degrees of graffiti, I think. Banksy obviously raised the bar, and I think graffiti is an eco-message. I can just about about go with that, I think. 
so we'll retrace our wheel tracks back to Glasgow and then we've got to take the ferry across I think it's called the Renfrewshire ferry and it goes across the Clyde of course I'm assuming it's running I just need to check on Twitter that it's running and then we'll wiggle our way down to Paisley and St Mirren and then into Glasgow to Glasgow Rangers and then Partick Thistle and then that will be stage five done just a little corrections corner there it's actually the fourth and Clyde canal not the Clyde and fourth canal and one other note the forecast this morning was terrible the rain for the first couple of hours that we were up was relentless but as soon as we got going it stopped raining and so Lizzie Banks is proven absolutely right I mean you can't get any better than no rain and although I don't want to tempt fate uh, I think you know we've got the first hour and a bit of the ride done today we can put up with some rain if it comes in a bit later on because we'll soon be at the point where we can count ourselves down to the finish and as much as I've uh, taken a bit of ribbing from Simon and Sam about my flappy decathlon waterproof trousers uh, they don't really complement the elegance of the map kit that I'm decked out in um, but I'm sticking with them because I think it will tempt fate if I take them off now sure as eggs is eggs if I take these trousers off it, the heavens will open and uh, we'll, we'll get soaked so I'm going to stick with them today and hope that the rain stays off have you got any cash Simon? I haven't got any cash Lionel you reckon you could swim that across there? the sign says no cash and stop stop this isn't the X factor Lionel why are you doing this to me? no the sign doesn't say no cash the sign says cash only no cards £2.50 to cross the... The Renfrewshire Ferry was indeed running, and as we arrived, I could see it bobbing across the water towards us. And I took the opportunity to wind up Simon, just to see if he'd read and absorbed the details in the Tour de Cos roadbook, which I'd spent so much time putting together. He hadn't, of course. Well, Simon, I don't want to... I looked at the route, the itinerary, I googled the ferry, I checked out when it goes... I know there's a terrible toll to be paid for being sort of slightly organised about these things, isn't there? Oh, look over there as well. I can see the mothership. There he is. There's Sam over there. On the other side. Wow. Oh, bike over nearly. Well yes. caught. You've not well caught. That well, have you? <laughs> you, you didn't put that in the right place. I tell you what, you? Simon. I'll pay you two pound fifty <laughs> as a thank you for saving my bike from blowing over in the wind. How many crossings do you do a day then? Yeah, I'd say with passengers on, I'd say about 100. 100, yeah? Oh, yeah. Back and forth. Yeah, today I've only done about 20, though it's really quiet. Okay. Is that because of the weather? Is yeah, it? Yeah, that's just the weather. Yeah. And what, what do people cross for? Is it commuters or. Cause the, I mean, what's the. Obviously, they want to get across the river, right? As we do. But is it a, a kind of commuter service or. Just America. tourists, being you're being recorded. We're yeah. making a podcast about oh, a journey yeah. around Scotland, visiting yeah. every football ground. Uh, yeah, most people in the winter are commuters, um, especially with the bad weather. But as you get the nicer weather, we do find a lot more cyclists like yourself. So that's probably the vast majority of our uh, trade. And is there anything that stops you going, I guess? The yeah, tide, uh, for one thing. What's that? The tide, if it's low tide, is that a problem? Uh, yeah, only exceptionally low tide. Um, there's a bit of a kind of drop off at the end of the slipway. I think 
gets too steep with, for the ramp, we need to call off. But only for about only for about 15 minutes. Uh, we only really have to call it off if we get excessive winds, right. really, um, which we don't really see down here. Um, in a whole year working here, I've not only about five times has the ferry been off. Oh right, okay. Um, lightning. Lightning, yeah. yeah. This feels very, very high tide. The river at the moment. Am I right? Yeah, we're kind of kind of bang in the middle. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've got another two and a half hours till high oh, okay. tide. Okay. Yeah, I can see actually on the wall it obviously comes up to the top, yeah, up, yeah. Up halfway up the wall or something. But, and how long have you been doing this? A year. A year. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, good. Been driving boats longer, but uh, uh, this has been a good job. And do you do the Twitter updates? No. Ah. Oh. No. I uh, love the Twitter updates. They're yeah, so that's like the boss. just nice and friendly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, he's pretty good for it. On the 16th day of May In the year of 87 Was when the Saints won the cup And the crowd went into heaven Well you go, buddies go And we'll all go together As we stand side by side We'll support the Saints forever Well you go, buddies go well, the rain's been coming down a bit now, hasn't it? What's happened since we got off the ferry? Well, um, that headwind down to Paisley, the home of St Mirren. I mean, that was brutal. We were bent double, crouched over the bike. Not, not. I wasn't feeling my best then. You were, you were disappearing into the distance. I was. I was struggling there, I have to say. In the wind, you've got to stay on the wheel, obviously, but uh, in the urban streets, it's risky, isn't it, I suppose? But I was not enjoying that, especially the stretch along right next to Glasgow Airport. Not Prestwick Airport, which we were at a couple of days ago, but we were basically alongside the runway. We were that close. Uh, I could see the whites of the eyes of the pilot. I'm I'm not joking. I could definitely see his head. And just when we were right alongside him, just as they're about to take off, I saw him do the sort of Millennium Falcon, let's go thing. And um, they disappeared into the distance while I pretty much remained still. I thought for a minute we were in the kind of running order. We were going to get all clear for takeoff (laughs) off to Marbella or somewhere. I don't know. But uh, it was, you got a real whiff of the fuel fumes didn't we as we uh, were parallel to the runway not sort of mixed in with the drizzle as mm. well it was mm. you could almost taste it on your tongue oh. couldn't you oh <laughs> yeah and then we got down to St Mirren Football Club they play at a relatively new ground which is I mean I've talked a bit about the architectural charm of the old football grounds but to me the new ground doesn't have any of the romance of their old ground in Love Street Love Street, of course. Well, that's quite fitting that it was Love Street in a way because we are doing our very best when we arrive at each um, ground to have a sort of a, not a cuddle, but a manly pat on the back of each other and get a a picture of ourselves at each ground outside. And um, we're not not comfortable, like... Not not natural huggers, are we? I wouldn't say I've ever hugged you before. Have I ever hugged you before? No, I don't I think so. I think, I think when, we, when you picked me up on Friday morning, the first time we'd seen each other since Richard 
passed away you gave me a, a, a nice firm pat on the back and a sort of squeeze on the arm and I, that's that said a lot because I know how difficult that must have been <laughs> for you it's um, yeah we're just I don't know just too re- reserved I suppose I get told off a lot by my wife for doing the, the patting thing she says that's just not what you do and I, I I try my best to not do it and then I always find myself sort of closing off a hug by doing the patting <laughs> and um, she said even that no you don't close off a hug by patting I think she's right yeah. I think she's right anyway we've arrived at Ibrox and what an impressive place I mean the red brick uh, the, the the big gates Rangers football club the history is all around I mean I'm not going to get into a debate about which is the bigger of the two Glasgow clubs for sure because that way lies uh, controversy but Rangers have won 55 league titles more than anyone else they've won 33 Scottish Cups 27 League Cups and one European Cup Winners' Cup. On the other hand, Celtic have won the European Cup once. So does that cancel out the gap between them in the league title count? How many, how many is that worth? A European Cup being the champions of Europe. Big deal, isn't it? Huge deal. I know it's slightly different in the 60s, in 1967, wasn't it? The Lisbon Lions. I mean, a team that was all from within a pretty much a stone throw of Celtic Park. But we can talk about that. But Celtic, of course. Keep it down. Absolutely keep it down. Yeah, that's a good shout, Simon. Uh, but this is the home of Rangers and an imposing place. A very, like I say, seen it on the TV. can just imagine what it's like here on a match day and on an old firm match day as well. I mean... Uh, the atmosphere around here must be absolutely electrifying. One more stop now, Simon. Partick Thistle with a little wild card deviation on the way. My granddad, my dad, my brother and me were a wee bit M.A.D. When it came to the selection of our favourite football team Glasgow, there are usually only two teams to SEE. But there's always scope for a little slice of eccentricity. Partick, T-H-I-S-T-L-E, our red and yellow team. And F-I-R-H-I-L-L is a stadium of dreams We've been here for 100 years and it's M-A-G-I-C So please come along and support T-H-I-S-T-L-E while we ride to Partick Thistle, why don't we hear from someone you know very well, Simon? Someone who was instrumental in our early love of football stadia design, Simon Inglis, whose book, The Football Grounds of England and Wales, I was bought for Christmas once when I was a child, and I absolutely immersed myself in that book. And then he updated it to include the grounds of Scotland, and I think it was called The Football Grounds of Great Britain. And he is the most knowledgeable person I can think of when it comes to talking about the the history and the evolution of football ground design and it all really stems from Glasgow Archibald Leach and Simon you 
mentioned your trip round the bowling clubs of Great Britain a couple of days ago when we were in Bar Hill and we saw that beautiful bowling green. You've worked closely with Simon Inglis. I have worked pretty closely really with Simon on a number of projects. The one about he, he sporting structures within cities. He loves them, and um, he's done Glasgow, he's done Manchester, London. I worked with him pretty closely on the London one, so we went to snooker clubs, just driving driving around London with Simon Inglis in the passenger seat and him pointing out buildings that you just would pass by otherwise and getting a little history lesson is, is just fantastic. Um, I've also had the pleasure of scanning uh, in Simon Inglis is quite a good photographer himself and he's got his archive all on transparencies and I spent six months or so scanning in his archive and immersing myself in all the grounds of Great Britain from sort of what the late 80s I I think um, when he and another very fine photographer Tony Davis must have travelled the length and breadth of the country uh, documenting writing drinking in the knowledge of of all the clubs so yeah well let's hear from simon because as he explains the roots of football stadium design are well they're absolutely originated here in glasgow Archibald Leach was a, an engineer, um, born into a poor working class family in Glasgow. His, his father was a blacksmith. Um, and from a very early age, clearly, he had all those qualities that we associate with, with the Scots, particularly at this period of industrialization eager, keen, um, inventive, ambitious. Um, and he fell in love with football. We know that he was a, a Rangers supporter growing up, even though he, he was born on the east side, on the Gallowgate side of Glasgow, so you'd have expected him to be a Celtic fan. But he was from the Protestant divide of the city and grew up following Rangers. Um, he became a marine engineer, which was um, in, in a place like Glasgow, was one of the sort of the, the main routes to, to fame and success. They always said that the best route to 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 fortune in Scotland was the road out of Scotland. And this is a period where Scottish engineers are literally traversing the world and and building railways in India and South America and ships and and sugar plantations and all sorts of things are going on. Um, And Archie was part of that drive. He he trains as a marine engineer. Then when he comes back to Glasgow to marry his, his childhood sweetheart, um, he settles down and works in the draftsman's office in a company that is import, uh, exporting uh, equipment, factory parts, basically a sort of imagine an Ikea, um, home-packed factories and buildings. And through that, he learns about the components and all the different elements that go up to make buildings um, and sets up eventually in 1896 on his own um, at the age of 31, 32, uh, he sets up as a, as a structural engineer on his own account. And a couple of years later, he puts in a proposal to rebuild the ground of Glasgow Rangers um, to build to, to transform it from a 25,000 capacity um, stadium with a, with a running track. 
into a, a giant 80,000 capacity stadium that, that um, would become the largest football stadium in the world at the time. So uh, both Glasgow Rangers and himself, incredibly uh, um, uh, ambitious. They, they all want to outdo Celtic and the other great Glasgow club at the time the, um, called Queen's Park, who remarkably were amateurs. Um, so if you imagine, here we've got Protestant Archie, very much a member of, of that sectarian divide, working very hard as an engineer, and he goes to the club that he supports and offers them his first ever stadium design. And that's in about exactly. 1897, 98. Um, we hear stories of how he puts on a magic lantern show for all the Rangers shareholders in a, in a hall in Glasgow, um, the equivalent of a, of, of a PowerPoint presentation. And he talks them round into this massively expensive and hugely ambitious plan to make Ibrox Park the biggest stadium in the world. And, and they go for it. Fantastic. I've got a smile on my face just thinking about the, the, the PowerPoint presentation of the Victorian era. <laughs> um, so, I mean, tell me, what were the kind of the, the, the calling cards of uh, Archibald Leach's work and the, the trademarks of his work, really? Well, the first thing to say is, is that the bulk of his other work he was getting as an engineer was, appears to have been in factories. And there are enormous uh, comparisons, the similarities between building a factory and building a football ground. First of all, you know, obviously it's a matter of steel and concrete and, and um, putting, you know, building buildings that are going to survive the weather that have got to be open to the elements, have got to be tough. They've got to be very practical. Um, the, the appearance is much less important than the functionality. Um, and also, this is crucial, um, they have to be built quickly and cheaply, uh, preferably during the summer months, so that the club who is building the stand or the stadium um, is not losing income whilst the construction work is taking place. And the other thing about it is you've got to have contacts. You've got to be uh, the kind of person that, that can win people round. And we know that um, Archie had a real sort of charisma and because he loved football he entered into that world and you can imagine him in the boardroom um, sitting in hotels uh, over a glass of scotch um, coaxing other football club chairmen into taking him on and he's very very successful about that but but the Rangers story doesn't quite start it, it, it is not quite the success that we think because this is probably the second football ground commission that he had we know that he designed one quite basic grandstand for Kilmarnock um, over on the west coast which I presume is 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 one of the stops along the way so he's built one for Kilmarnock Kilmarnock in 1899 but meanwhile the work on Glasgow Rangers at Ibrox has started and it takes several months and then on the final day when it's ready and Rangers have won the right to stage the very prestigious England Scotland versus England international that's the big money spinner that's the one that Rangers want to win in preference to Celtic um, the, the match um, is going ahead the crowds come in and Regrettably, uh, there is a terrible disaster. Some of the wooden um, floorboarding that is used, what the Americans would call the bleachers, the American boards on which people are standing, and, and in a capacity of 80,000, there's probably something like sort of 70,000 70, people are standing on these boards around the stadium. Uh, some of them crack and 25 people lose their life. Uh, as the game has started and Archie is in the crowd. He sees this, he's in the middle of it. 
and he can see that as the result of his own work, 25 people have died. And this is a, a crucial, tragic turning point in his career and indeed in, in the development of football grounds because it sort of marks the transition from the Victorian way of building, which was sort of building platforms on high, to the early 20th century model, which is basically building solid grass earth mounds on which you're putting concrete and steel crash barriers. And really that should have been the end of Archie's career. Um, if this was in the modern world, he would have been sued for negligence. Um, he, nobody would have touched him again. But because of the laws in Scotland at the time, although there was an inquiry, uh, Archie himself was not found culpable. All the blame was uh, supposedly attached to the man who supplied the timber. Uh, the, the, the accusation being that the timber had been uh, substandard. Um, in fact, in the end, the timber merchant was let off um, and the, the whole question mark of guilt was sort of left hanging. And Archie, who was a Rangers fan, let's face it, and had pleaded with the club not to sack him because he'd, he'd not even got a contract with them. He'd, he'd done this out, of, a, out of, of the goodness of his heart. He had not charged them any fees. And he writes to them a very plaintive letter saying, if you let me go now, you'll be more or less telling the world that I am guilty of negligence. And this is not the case. Please, you know, keep with me and we will put this right. And he does what any good engineer does, um, you know, whether you're riding a bicycle or building a factory or a, or a large ship or a, a whatever it is, when you make mistakes in the engineering process, you sit down at the drawing board, you get out your lathe, you get out your drawings and, and you make it work again. That's the nature of an engineer. And so out of that, I mean, the, the modern, uh, well, the, the next step, the, the, the football terrace was born, I guess, from from the from that disaster, because like you say, the, 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 the solid earth uh, then evolved into concrete steps and, and so on. Yes, the, the, the mass sort of terrace that we all grew up with and, and that many of us in my generation um, stood on for, 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 for a lot of our lives. That was the Archie look. And because uh, he was successful, with, within a, a year or two of, of uh, the Ibrox disaster, he's got commissions at Middlesbrough. Um, uh, he's got a, he, he moves to um, Liverpool because the factory work is starting to dry up in Glasgow as the economy changes. Glasgow's position as the second city of the empire starts to fade by the end of the 19th century and places like Liverpool where there's much more demand for factories. So he moves his family to, to Liverpool um, and he works for Liverpool, he works for Everton, he um, uh, is called down to give evidence in a, in a, a trial over the collapse of a, a standard um, in London, a very minor matter, nothing very significant, but he clearly catches the, the, the eye of people in West London and he ends up working for Fulham and then Chelsea during the summer of 1905. And before you know it, over the next 20 years, he becomes the man. He is the man that many football clubs turn to. I think if you look at a first division table from the, about 1928, you'll see that out of the 22 clubs or so, that, that Archie had a hand in something like 16 of those clubs in, in one shape or form or another. You know, some of them rebuilding their stadiums, in other perhaps just building one terrace. But he had a very good contacts book indeed, ambitious, 
very um, uh, sociable and efficient sort of guy. I mean, it didn't always go well. Um, if, if your cycling trip takes you to Hearts, the heart of Midlothian in Edinburgh, sadly, the stand that he built has just been demolished in the last couple of years, but he had terrible problems with Hearts and um, things went very badly. When he worked at, uh, at Arsenal, the stadium that he built at Highbury in 1913, it wasn't ready on the opening day and there were tarpaulins everywhere and the, the whole place wasn't finished. And Archie had to hide on the day from the chairman of Arsenal, who was this boorish, very dominating, angry bloke called Henry Norris. And there's a, a, an account of how Archie makes himself quite... Um, he, he disappears off to an Italian restaurant so that the chairman can't find him on the day of the opening. <laughs> so it doesn't always go well. The Tour de Cos is sponsored by Super Sapiens. You can use Super Sapiens data to find out the foods that work best for you, when to fuel for optimum performance, and how to keep the dreaded bonk at bay. Real-time glucose data at your fingertips means no more guesswork on fueling. You call him Archie, Simon. There's a great deal of affection here. Why is that? First of all, I, I, I watched my football. I grew up watching my football at Villa Park. And I loved the stand at Villa Park and I stood on the Holt End Terrace. And um, I was aware that Villa Park was a special ground. Um, and then later in life, I discovered that the Holt End and the Trinity Road stand at Villa Park had been designed by Leach's firm, Archibald Leach and, 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 and Sons um, uh, Structural Engineers. So there was that connection. Um, and then I started noticing when I was doing my early football ground research that there were stands that looked the same and there was very little information. I mean, you know, the thing about Archie was that he was a completely unsung hero in his lifetime. When he died, the only obituary I could find from him for him was in his uh, trade journal, the Institute of Civil Engineers. And it was two lines, which sim simply said that he'd been a factory designer. Nothing at all, not a single word about him being a football ground designer. And the only club that I found where there's any written evidence of, of them thanking him for all the work that he was done was Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and that was because later in life, um, he moved to London and started going to Tottenham as a fan. To a certain extent, Archie was was um, an unknown character in 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 his in his lifetime, and so when I wrote the book, um, I was having to engineer, if you like, a, a life of him out of very little evidence, and everything I learned about him, I you know he was. He was a wily Scot, um, and perhaps because my father uh, is, was Scottish, I come from um, Scottish uh, parents, Glasgow and Edinburgh, and um, grew up loving Scotland. Perhaps I had that sort of affection. But also, I think it's a recognition of the fact that the modern world of football that we know, the way the game is played, the rules, um, the whole system uh, of, of building stadiums, of, of laying down turf, for creating um, good, solid, well-drained football pitches. A lot of that expertise came from Scotland in the, in the second half of the 19th century. And to that extent, association football is as much a, a Scottish game as it is an English game. For those of us, we can't, we can't see in the podcast an example of Archibald Leach's work, but you know, what were the, the visual kind of uh, motifs of, of his designs? Well, two, two things, really. One is in terms of the terraces, 
um, there was a kind of crush barrier, a simple tubular steel crush barrier, which he patented in around 1908 that arose as a result of the Ibrox disaster in 1902, his redesign of the terraces. And these became ubiquitous right across the football world. Um, and if you saw a picture of them, you would, if you were an older a person of a certain vintage, you recognize them straight away. Um, two examples of them survive, one at the Scottish Football Museum in Hamden uh, and another in the National Football Museum in Manchester, which we, rec which we rescued actually from the terraces at Saltergate in Chesterfield just before the ground was demolished, having recognised that actually these might be the last few examples of Archie barriers around the country. So there's the barriers on the terraces and the stands themselves um, he had a sort of a pattern book, you know, he could design you a cheap stand, a middle ranking stand and an expensive stand, and they all had different features. But if you were going for the expensive one, it would be a double decker stand. Uh, so the kind of stand that we see at Ibrox Park, at, at Goodison Park, where he designed two of them. Uh, there was one at Sunderland, Aston Villa, um, uh, uh, at, at um, Plymouth Argyle, which was built actually after he died, um, uh, at the baseball ground in Derby at Southampton, they had two of these stands. And the, 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 the trademark of those was, was that the steel girder, which formed the balcony wall, so if you imagine the front row, that the wall that runs along the front row of the upper tier, um, is a purely structural element, um, but because it, it, it is part of the um, structure of the steel, it has tensioning bars in it. So it, 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 is, it is an engineered um, collection of nuts, bolts and steel girders. And these elements together uh, formed a sort of a crisscross lattice work piece of steel work. And those became very familiar. You saw them, all the fans would see them. There, there are countless numbers of photographs of goals being scored, of action taking place with those lattice work girders in the background. Um, in the old original days, they were just painted all dark green and they've, they sort of melded into the background. But by the 60s and 70s, clubs were picking them out with a white background and painting the colour of the steel in the club colours, say blue at Everton and, and, and Rangers, red at Sunderland. And so these lattice work, what I call his crisscross uh, steelwork balconies became very much a trademark. And then the third element on the roof was whether you could afford a gable or not. Um, if the club had the money, um, as they had at say Everton um, uh, or at Fulham, at Sheffield Wednesday, there was a gable which um, often looked like a sort of a mock Tudor quite incongruous really alongside a modern steel uh, piece of a construction and it would have the name of the club on it um, and those are very much uh, signifiers of of identity now um, very few of them survive um, uh, there's a, a reconstructed one at, at Sheffield Wednesday um, and there's a bit of one still at Barnsley um, but a, a lot of them have 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 gone uh, but so if you went to a match in the 20s or the 30s, uh, you would see Archibald Leach's work everywhere without really knowing who he was or where they came from. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me since, what do I think of modern grounds? Because the complaint is, oh, they all look the same. 
Well, the truth of the matter is, is that they all looked the same in the 20s and 30s as well. Um, there was a style. Um, Archie led the way and a lot of other people copied. There was a stand at Celtic that looked exactly like an Archibald Leach stand. It can't have been Archie because he would never have worked for a Catholic club. But it turns out that one of his apprentices, one of the people from Leach's company, had gone to work for Celtic and pretty much copied that stand design. And that, that happens today as well. You see lots of stands that look similar, but by different architects. So that doesn't change at all. Wow. Tell me about the, the, the as you s described it, the, the, the finest surviving example of Archie's work. Uh, even, uh, even I'm calling him Archie now. I feel like <laughs> I've got to know him as a personality in the last <laughs> minutes. Um, but, but it's at Ibrox, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a hugely significant feature of the ground still to this day, isn't it? Tell me a bit about that. It is. The stand at Ibrox is, first of all, it's one of two listed leech stands, one at Ibrox, and there are two leech structures at Craven Cottage in Fulham that are listed. Um, the, the Archie stand at Ibrox was the second stand he'd built for the club. It was built in the late 1920s to replace the original one he'd built in 1902. Um, red brick exterior, which is unusual for Glasgow, um, in, in, in a town where um, obviously the, the, the local sandstone is, is predominates in terms of building and construction. So red brick, um, a steel frame, large, very imposing, beautiful um, uh, use of, of stonework and mosaic, um, very nice detail inside beautifully um, um, polished wooden um, uh, corridors and, and um, boardrooms, all, all beautifully presented to a very, very high degree, like a very, very smart upmarket corporate headquarters for the 1920s or 30s. Um, the crisscross balcony, the trademark leech uh, balcony, on the roof originally, an extraordinary, instead of a gable, it had um, a sort of a castellated press box, like a, like a castle on top of the roof, um, a towering built, uh, thing which, alas, caught fire and, and, and was replaced in later life. Sadly, that, that roof element has gone because the stand has been um, updated with an extra tier and, uh, and so on. But the, uh, the facade, the street facade still survives. Very imposing, red brick, uh, very institutional, um, and uh, with beautiful car, uh, uh, wrought iron gates at either side, a grand entranceway. Uh, it's got a real imposing presence um, and it's coming up to its 100th anniversary and it still looks very fine indeed. But oh, if you're in, if, if you're traveling around Scotland, equally, equally, I would say go to Dundee, to, to Dens Park, um, because although it's a much simpler stand, it's, it's clad in corrugated iron. Uh, this was very much a sort of the lower end of Archie's pattern book, the cheap version, but still looking pretty good very basic, like a factory um, with corrugated iron, nothing special, but that as, is as much gives you an indication of Leach's work as, as Ibrox will. And, and of course, in London, if you're ever in London, go to Craven Cottage, uh, to the ground of Fulham, where there's some beautifully preserved Leach work still there. I think what Leach represents is a time in Scotland's uh, um, history when it's, it's educated young 
thrusting, ambitious, working class engineers, particularly engineers, but entrepreneurs as well, businessmen, financiers, philanthropists. They were active right around the British Empire. The British Empire gave them a, a, st a stepping off ground to the world. And there are cities all over the world. I live in one, London, where the tube system, uh, the railway system was built essentially by Scots at the turn of the century. Um, Archie represented that, taking an industry, taking a popular sport like football, which was in its in infancy, and giving it a look, giving it a, a form, giving it a function, giving it an appearance that uh, worked, that was popular and that served its purpose. Of course, those that, that era has gone now, but for a period of 20, 30 years, um, the Scottish... Uh, the Scottish ingenuity helped literally to transform the world that we live in. And Archie was very much part of that movement. Shoot, uh, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that the Tour de Cost series is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer, which is leading the way from Gretna to Dingwall. Now, I forgot to charge it up properly overnight, but the battery life on the Karuto is really impressive, and I reckon it probably would have handled two full back-to-back -back days without needing a charge. I just kind of panicked and plugged it into my uh, battery pack just to make sure. But when you consider that we were out all day, both days, uh, four and a bit hours of riding, but then all of the hanging around and waiting while the Karoo 2 is just on pause, it's pretty impressive though. You can go out and do a long ride without having to worry about the battery running down. And I'd not even looked into any of the energy saving features just to preserve the battery life between charges. If you would like to get yourself a Hammerhead Karoo too, you can buy one at hammerhead.io and for a limited time, get a free heart rate monitor with your purchase. Go to hammerhead.io and use the promo code cycle at checkout to get yours today. That's a free heart rate monitor with your Karoo too. Add both items to your shopping cart and use the promo code CYCLE. As Lionel and Simon put the athletic into 4-4 athletic and the heart into heart of Midlothian, let science in sport put the fuel in your bidons and back pockets. Energy drinks, gels, bars and beta fuel, science in sport has everything to boost your performance and keep you going. You can get 25% off at scienceinsport.com using the code SISCP25. We've used our initiative a bit there, haven't we? Quite impressed. We have, and I mean, I only said this is bullshit once. <laughs> and that was Richard's catchphrase, wasn't it? Whenever anything went wrong logistically on the tour, which was often, he would just say, this is bullshit. And I was just thinking about that. And uh, one of many humorous occasions with Richard in the car at a Grand Tour, it was a Giro, I don't remember which year, I think we were somewhere near Perugia, and we were driving up the motorway, and he'd said to me, be careful, because if we miss the junction, it's 60k up and back to get back here, so don't miss the junction. What happened, Lionel? I missed the junction. We were listening to Buffalo FM, we were in our own little worlds, and I missed the junction. And he was really pretty irritated, I have to say. He gripped the steering wheel. He went easy on me, actually. 
we went up to the next junction 30 kilometers up the road turned around came back 30 kilometers and missed it again oh, no. now he was annoyed at me the first time because it was my fault he was annoyed at himself the second time because it was his fault now when we came back again can you can you imagine what we did we missed it a third time we missed it a third time because we got stuck in the outside lane and couldn't get back across to take the exit to be fair we found it funny the third time because there was no other option in the end we busked it we went up to the other junction and then wiggled back in across country sort of dumped the car on the wrong side of town and kind of legged it in the may italian heat arrived uh, quite warm and cross but we did make the finish um, but yeah this is bullshit where are we simon um, am i supposed to know <laughs> well there's a big sign that says the west of scotland cricket club on the front there hamilton crescent this is and that's a cricket pitch we're in Partick, in, uh, well, the outskirts of Glasgow, really. I mean, basically, a, a, a district of Glasgow. And this is where the first ever international football match was played between Scotland and England on November the 30th, 1872. 4,000 people were in here. And guess what the score was? <laughs> I'm going to say it was high scoring. I don't know why I think it might be high scoring. Probably the uneven pitch, maybe. <laughs> but I'm going to go five all. Five all? You'd have heard about that. If, you, if the first ever international football match had ended five all, you would definitely know that. It was actually a goalless draw. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> um, and there were other internationals played here in the uh, years that followed that between England and Scotland and uh, then Hamden Park started hosting the Scotland Internationals so this is a little slice of history and there's a well there's a, that looks like a is that a church over there that looks like a church it may well be a church I don't know it's actually beautiful isn't it it's, it's quite calm in, in the bustle of the city there's just this well you can hear the hum of the motorway just over there we had a bit of difficulty getting under the motorway um certainly a very busy road if not the motorway and yeah just in front of the pavilion here there's the benches um, for spectators to watch cricket not the cricket season at the moment obviously but will be shortly perhaps in a few weeks a bit of work to do on the wicket over there I would have suggested maybe I'd tell you right yeah it's, she needs some work but it's they've cordoned it off and so there's work going on I think ready ready to be mown uh, but at the moment that is going to favour any bowlers who like a real low skip through the fast bowlers that can get get it just going through low aiming at the wicket have you got a cricket style I'd imagine it's is it similar to your golf swing I <laughs> <laughs> uh, haven't played cricket for a long long time um, I'm not a big fan of the heavy not heavy but very very hard cricket ball hurtling towards me I used to play cricket when I was starting out as a journalist at the Watford Observer we had a works team and we'd play in the Watford Observer Cricket Cup and uh, generally get knocked out in the first round um, but we felt we ought to field a team 
and my signature move was just try and get the bat in the way of me between me and the ball it's not a shield line <laughs> it was a very much i used the bat as a shield and if it went far enough for me to nick a single i would nick a single and breathe a sigh of relief when i was <laughs> off strike <laughs> so yeah that gives you an indication of my cricketing prowess i have absolutely none Pro- yeah golf better at golf better again at darts i mean there we there we're working through the sports <laughs> i don't know where cycling fits on that i'm feeling quite tired this afternoon i must admit let's get to partick thistle and then we can say we've completed stage five and i think i think a lovely curry awaits this evening with a very good friend of ours you've warned me about uh curries in this area you say it's quite spicy i've had some very unexpectedly hot curries in glasgow yeah twice in fact once when we were here for a cycling podcast live event and we went for a curry and they did warn me they said look just go down one from what you would order at home no 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 i didn't need to do that um it was yeah my my the the the, just a little bit underneath my eyes started to sweat (laughs) just between the sort of eyelid and the cheek Uh, remember that and came back again after that and made the same mistake. It was a cold, wet ride through the Glasgow city streets as we headed to our destination, Partick Thistle Football Club. And as the evening began to close in, I must admit my morale was as grey as the sky. Not least because we kept getting splashed by buses and trucks and cars that were going through the puddles as they were passing us. The water gathering on the streets was really quite significant after a whole afternoon of heavy rain. But I was looking forward to a pre-dinner drink and a chance to meet up with an old friend and colleague of mine from the days when I started work for Cycling Weekly magazine back in the late 90s. Kenny Pride was a name familiar to me from the bylines in the cycling magazines I'd read when I'd been getting into the sport in the 80s and early 90s. And it was a pleasure to meet up with Kenny and find out a bit more about his home city, Glasgow, and his time covering Glasgow's finest cycling export. Long time no see, Kenny. I'm going to introduce you as uh, one of the godfathers of British cycling journalism, but maybe in the second wave, you know, like the the sort of... Well, there was a Tom Simpson wave, wasn't there? And you were very much in the Robert Miller wave, really, I I guess, you know. Um, Just tell me just briefly your cycling journalism history up to the point where we kind of overlapped a little bit it was Robert Miller's fault that I got into cycling because I was uh, I was pedalling about on a bike just to get about and in 1983 July 1983 Robert Miller won a stage in the Tour de France which even made the Scottish national news at which point I thought that's what I want to do that's that's cool that's like the logical extension of me peddling about and when you're peddling about every now and again you'd be passed by these guys just drifting past you you know like shoulder to shoulder lovely bikes 
matching club kit and you go wow that's fantastic and then Robert Miller won the stage of the Tour de France and then uh, Luchon and I just thought right and the local club that I ended up joining was in fact Robert's first club the Glen Marnock Wheelers and the guy who ran the Glen Marnock John Story who had been a previous international and he was a he was a really great advocate for cycling and he would put this stuff in the local newspaper come along and join and so when Robert won the stage he was all over it come and join so that was it uh, and from there I realised very quickly that was terrible I was I had zero aptitude to ride I mean I was 23 by then so I was all past it you know I was never going to I was never going to make it so um, I was rubbish so I, I still you know I was still an active club rider and, and, and took part but um but I realised the only way I was going to get my name in the paper was a byline. So I decided to, to become a cycling journalist. That's pretty much it. As we all do, if you can't do it, write about it. Absolutely. That's how it works, yes, I think. Yeah. Whereabouts did you grow up in Glasgow? Because you're a Glasgow boy. Yes. yes. Um, again, uh, south side. Um, Robert was from Shawlands, Pollock Shaws, which is a couple of miles away from Rutherglen, which is, which is where I was born, which is kind of why we were in the same club. So Robert was in Glenmarnock Wheelers, I ended up in Glenmarnock Wheelers, and then Robert joined the Glasgow Wheelers, which is the oldest cycling club in Scotland. And um, yeah, I just I pedalled and, and then started to pester people. I was I was a, an, one of those perpetual students at the time, so I was working on a PhD in some sort of Marxist nonsense. And, uh, and just slogging away and slogging away and getting nowhere, and suddenly I thought, and I wrote something. I just wrote, randomly wrote an article and sent it to a magazine. And then I picked up the magazine next month and they'd printed it. And I thought, well, that, that was easy. <laughs> Little did I know. But anyway, that was it. And then they paid me for it. And I was like, oh, wow, this, is, this, is, this is fantastic. You know, they paid me for something I've been doing for nothing for years. And that was it. Uh, and, and then I hassled Cycle Weekly. And then I hassled a magazine called Bicycle Action. And that, that was pretty much it. I ended up down in London and... 1918 uh, freelance for Cycling Weekly from about 86 through to 89 just being the Scottish correspondent and then in 89 I thought I saw that I'm just going to have to go down to London and get a, a staff job and, uh, and I did uh, Bicycle Action then winning in March 1990 my first race was the Tour of Flanders won by Moreno Argentin and his uh, Ariostea kit who outsprinted Rudy Dannans same day the poll tax riots uh, yeah, shared a bed with Graham Watson. That guy's hairy, let me tell you. <laughs> shared a bed, I've shared a room. Actually, quite literally, actually. my friend, quite literally, a bed. And uh, he's hairy and he, he casts a lot, you know, when you wake up in the morning. And the other thing, if you're ever sharing a room, far less a bed with Graham Watson, you've got to fall asleep quick because he, swear, he swears. No, he snores. He snores so badly. And I was warned in advance. You share my Graham? Yeah. Oh, God, you've got to get to sleep quick. What? Oh, I don't Yeah, so. Winning Bicycle Racing Illustrated yeah. was my window into the world of professional cycling. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. I mean, there was Cycling Weekly, which was kind of the black and white version, and winning was glorious Technicolor, as yeah. Richard Moore described it in a recent podcast we made. And it was it was the photography of Graham Watson, but it was also the writing as well that, that took us to the... Yeah to the Tour de France, to the Giro, to the classics and really put some meat on the bones of, of the bare race results which you know, Cycling Weekly did very well but 
it, it was it was like just seeing it all, wasn't it? It, it cyclically absolutely lacked colour, literally and figuratively. You know, the, the photographs were black and white. It was really domestically focused. Yeah, I mean, winning was the, was actually the thing that inspired me. John Wilcoxon, his editorship, and from the mid eighties onwards, um, when I got there, Rupert Guinness uh, had taken over, uh, and then I took over from Luke Evans, who was another. Um, it's quite incestuous, actually, when you think about it. Luke Evans was uh, Graham Watson's pilot. He was the, the motorbike rider that that. Uh, that Graham used latterly for a lot of races, but uh, yeah, Luke, Luke and I worked in um, in winning for for a whole year almost before he kind of went. Okay, I'm leaving now. It was like okay, uh, so I'll take over. Yeah, that was. Um, but yeah, John Wilcox and I remember those those issues uh, featuring the classics. You know, I mean, you knew you and you would just stare at the photographs. Not that the words weren't you know important too but you know the photographs the photography was just fantastic you would look at every detail from Greg LeMond's Dewey shoes to his you know counting the teeth of his chain ring to the simplex retro I mean it's, it's, it's such a cliche but that's all we had you know and you would study everything absolutely everything and anything that was involved anything that revealed you know like the training secrets of the pros you know was like that was gold dust you know what do these guys do what are they doing well I, I mentioned you were in the kind of second wave of, of, of cycling journalists from Britain. Robert Miller was kind of the, the, the one-man second wave of British cycling, really, after <coughs> Tom Simpson and I suppose also Barry Hoban. But in terms yeah. of somebody who might have been able to win the Tour de France, Robert Miller was, well, exceeded in a way Tom Simpson's achievements. Robert Miller won the King of the Mountains jersey in 84, won uh, multiple Tour de France stage wins, came within a Spanish armada of winning the Vuelta yeah. in 86, and of course is is now Philippa York, and I'm not dead naming her by referring to Robert Miller, but Robert Miller was uh, the, the, the name of the athlete who um, achieved all of those things. Yeah. And of course, when you came into cycling journalism, I guess it was important to get to know Robert and cover and you're laughing I mean even from just watching on TV as a kid I could tell quite a prickly character (laughs) at times it was quite it was quite funny in a way because obviously um, you know travelling with travelling to races whether it was the Dauphiné Paris-Nice the Tour whatever it was you know Liège Barcelona Liège I would travel with Belgian and French journalists and they go, ah, Kenny, you're Scottish and I go, ah, Robert Miller and I go, yeah, oh, so tell us you know, I'll stop the accent now but you know, they'd say, tell us, you know, what's he like, what's he like it's like, I don't know, well, you must have special access <laughs> no, 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 no no, <laughs> no uh, Robert was incredibly prickly I don't think I got many favours which, which was fine, you know, I mean, you know uh just because you're from Glasgow doesn't mean to say you're my mate, you know. But um, but there was absolutely no no favouritism. And I remember one one year at the Nissan, um, some interminable stage, Nissan Classic Tour of Ireland, you know, a sort of preparation race in October. And Robert had attacked, and he'd attacked from a long way out, and and it was like, oh, that's a strange thing to do. And I remember, and, and obviously he was caught, and then whoever won the stage won the stage. Adrie van der Poel, perhaps. But anyway, and I came up to him and I said, so. That was a serious effort then, and he looked at me and he went, you're not going to start asking fucking stupid questions, are you? <laughs> and I basically went, oh, and I just walked away. 
that was pretty much it. But, but at the same time, I mean, he was, you know, on his day, I forgot him on the right day, you know. I, it, it belongs, uh, the, that relationship in the mid-80s and uh, into the early 90s. If you arrange to meet a rider, nobody had a mobile phone, or very, very few people had mobile phones. The numbers of the hotel rooms were... You know, the riders were in such and such a room and the number of the, the rider would just be... And you'd go to reception and just phone up and say, hey, you know, are you all right? Can you, know, you time for an interview or can we have a chat? And he'd go, yeah, you just come up. So you'd end up in the room of, you know, Robert and you could sit down and have a chat. And, and you know, latterly that's, that's kind of unthinkable, you know. But, uh, yeah, he, he, so funny though. Just always funny. Always, you know... I always thought it was a Glasgow thing, you know, genuinely that kind of Glasgow just taking the piss. And if you if you know somebody well enough, and you, you're kind of on the same wavelength, and I like to think that we, that we were based on a common kind of cultural heritage or something like that, but that attitude and what you thought was funny and what you thought was appropriate to say and stuff, yeah. I mean, most of the stuff was unprintable. I always got that sense that there was a there was the answer that he could have given, and then the answer he did give, which and the answer he did give was sometimes the one that, like you say, he knew wouldn't be printed. <laughs> and uh, I remember our co- former colleague Keith Bingham. There's a great <laughs> moment in the the film, isn't there? Um, in the high life. In the hi- yeah, the high life, isn't it? Yeah, and there's just it must be in the Pyrenees somewhere, and it's it's the tour that. Miller's having a tough time in and I think he quit didn't he he's 86 isn't it he, he got very close but he was in the King of the Mountain jersey until the final week yeah. quit the race and there's just this moment where Keith who we both know I used to sit next to Keith at Cycling <laughs> Weekly Bonkers Bingham, uh, bonkers Bingham uh, but just a lovely soul yeah. and he's just trying to do his job and get his quote from Robert Miller and he sidles <laughs> over <laughs> sidles over to the team car Miller's sat in the boot with you know the boots open he sat on the edge of the the boot of the car you know taking his uh taking his shoes off or whatever and Keith just asks one of those just just easy questions just yeah, the icebreaker a low yeah. ball the light the icebreaker gets nowhere and I was like and whenever I get nowhere in uh in this uh crazy job I do think of that moment and think well we've all kind of been there We've all kind of been there, but no one tougher to interview, I would have thought, than than Robert Miller in in back in those days, maybe. Yeah, I I, I always tried because I, I liked you know I liked talking to him. We we you know there, there were a few laughs, you know there was there was, there was jokes, but um, but it wasn't it wasn't a given. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like oh yeah, Robert's starting today, because you know don't forget, Miller at the time was was a, was a hitter. You know, he, he was a guy who there was a lot of pressure on him. You know, especially after he left Peugeot to to go to Panasonic, TVM, and and famously Le Groupement in the end. You know, so there was quite a bit. He was he was expected to produce produce the goods, and and I don't and I think by his own admission, he wasn't quite he wasn't quite able to to do that. Assume, as they say, you know, the, the kind of responsibilities of team leadership. You know, and um and so he, he could be extra prickly, and. Well, it's kind of understandable. There are definitely days. I mean, the more you think about it, you know, somebody, you know, rides, I don't know, 200k, and then they finish the cross the line. I don't know when you ride any number of kilometres or whatever, and you, you kind of finish, and somebody's going, okay, so tell me, and you're like, just, you know, go away. You know, go away would seem to be a reasonable response. 
We only did 78 kilometres today and I wouldn't have fancied doing a finish line interview after the rain we rode through. I was, I was done. I was done. I was absolutely done. Probably Miller's best rides, actually, other than the ones that where he won, were when he supported Greg LeMond in the, in the tour for Zeb Peugeot, yeah, 1990. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, he did some incredible work there. Yeah, I just again massively. I remember one of the rides he always claimed he was most proud of was was um, winning in Catalonia, um, which at the time I think was um, was a late season. It was in August, you know, and that was that was a hell of a performance. But it was in an era where we didn't get wall to wall cycling coverage, and nobody really we didn't even have Google Maps to type in and go, "Where's Catalonia?" You know, where, "Where's Plada de?" Where's where? You know, you didn't know where these places were. You had no clue. You know what? Is it a hilly? Flat? Well, I, I don't know. Is it important? You know, did they cover it? So, and because we didn't have it that much, you know, national coverage either, in, you know, in the newspapers, even the Telegraph and stuff like that would maybe give you a result, but there would be no, you know, you had no clue what was happening or, or how to gauge the the performance that somebody had put in to win something like, you know, the Tour of Catalonia or the Volta Catalonia or whatever the appropriate. But anyway, yeah, that was... He was kind of ploughing a lone furrow, and I don't think he was appreciated at the time. Still, there you go. Well, we met in I think '98 when I started as a sub editor at Cycling Weekly, and you—well, I, I mean, I was kind of in awe of you, Luke, Luke Evans. <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you guys were the names I'd seen, the bylines I'd seen in uh, Winning Magazine and then Cycle Sport Magazine, and then here I was. Um, uh, correcting all your spelling mistakes, <laughs> can you? This is my art. My no, yeah, I was butchering your art. Um, but you, um, I mean, you, you, the the next kind of Scottish cyclist to come along was was David Miller, and you you had a uh, a hand in sort of him getting to the continent, really, as well, didn't you? A little bit, yeah. That was, um, yeah, I had made some contacts and. Um, when I'd been at winning, I kind of knew some, some French journalists and, and some of the French journalists, particularly one guy, Jean-Francois Kenny, Breton, um, who's now working for uh, the GRCS. Uh, he does a lot of translation. I guarantee you, you've seen and heard his voice, you know. I've seen him and heard his voice because he's the guy that does the, the translations. He's a, you know, polyglot, multilingual, you know. He was absolutely a savage journalist, though, you know. He would... Yeah, but savage in the sense that he, his work ethic was was horrendous. Anyway, Jeff also was keen, and he helped a number of Australian cyclists find places and stuff like that. And uh, and so there was David Miller and Charlie Wigalis and, and Jez Hunt uh, from that era that I tried to you know put in touch with, kind of through Jeff Kenny really to sort of like find them a find them a slot and a, and a team. And, uh, and both of them ended up, uh, Jez Hunt and, and David Miller ended up at VC Saint Quentin in, in, the, in the north, ironically, not in Brittany with Jeff Kenny. But um, yeah, we get, and then we'd send them care parcels, you know, we'd send them copies of Loaded. They were not interested in cycling magazines, they wanted pictures of naked ladies basically in Loaded because they were lonely boys, you know. So, um, no, and it's funny actually, I saw I had communication with Jez recently. Um, He's he's based in Melbourne. Well, he was based in Melbourne. He's now having a wee bit of a, a Euro tour, but yeah, he's he's still kicking a ball, as we say in Scotland. He's still on the scene, and David Miller's obviously gone on to be David Miller. 
Well, yeah, Jeremy Hunt, you mentioned there. I mean, he went to Benesto, didn't he? In the in the Miguel Indurain, the, the, the kind of the tail end of the Indurain era. And Hunt won the British Nationals, I think, very early on. Uh, really good sprinter. Um, loaded magazine. When, when I joined Cycling <laughs> Weekly, we were in King's Reach Tower on the South Bank. Loaded magazine was in the same building. Um, I mean, that era has well and truly gone, possibly for the better really i mean it was uh i mean i couldn't possibly i couldn't possibly say yeah um but just wanted to also ask you about richard moore because richard always to me at any rate credited you with giving him a break or a nudge into cycling journalism now he always took this as a kind of a slight on his cycling ability because it, it came across as a, again a kind of Glaswegian thing well the cycling's obviously not working out but you can put a few words together Rich, first of all Richard was from Edinburgh and as such he is the sworn enemy of every Glaswegian who ever drew breath um, so that was a serious black mark against the big man but um no, Richard, I was always jealous of Richard because Richard was a proper cyclist. He could, he was a winner. He won races. He, I used to, I used to, because I was terrible and a terrible racer and ended up writing, I, I used to follow in the commissar's car and watch the racing and listen to the radio and, you know, go and bind the brake. Richard would actually be in the races and then write the report. That's, <laughs> that's that was just like, oh, son of a bitch that's that's proper quality so um basically i think what happened was when i um when i quit uh, working for cycle weekly there was an obvious gap in the market and I, I'm, I may have mentioned his name as somebody that was you know capable of, of picking up the picking up the pain so to speak picking up the van but yeah richard was he's a good guy i i've I, honestly I, I have a hard time yeah, no, no, I, yeah, it's just ridiculous, but, yeah, and the other thing, actually, that's is maybe slightly ironic was that his boot, slaying the badger, I, I'd moved out of cycling at, uh, for a while and I was working on a motorbike magazine, and um, and he launched the book slaying the badger at Luke Mano Hands, which was 200 yards away from the office I was at. And Daniel Free was kind of doing the Q and A thing, and I'd never been. I I was out of cycling really effectively, and and I remember going along to this look my no hands presentation and just sitting in the audience and kind of not quite heckling, but you know always itching to ask him a question. And I remember thinking, can he be writing that book? I should be writing that book because it was kind of like that was my how's he writing it so ultimately Richard was responsible for me deciding I needed to write a book which subsequently I did but so he inspired me in a way if I inspired him to some extent then he absolutely inspired me to to get back into it yeah I wanted to talk to Kenny a Glaswegian about the sectarian divide in the city Rangers Celtic Protestant Catholic and I did but we'll cover that ground in the next episode, because for now, I can almost hear my stomach rumbling. It's time for dinner. Well, Kenny, it's been a pleasure to meet up again. Um, why don't we go and have a good Glaswegian curry? Yeah, that is absolutely... I, I forget the haggis. Forget all of that smoked salmon, venison nonsense. Glasgow's favourite dish. It's not even fish and chips. It's a curry.
So we should go for a curry. If you can't find a good curry in Glasgow, you're not trying. That is the end of stage five, but we're not done with Glasgow yet, not by a long chalk, because next time we have a mammoth day of football ground. Seven in all, and 78 kilometres of riding, crisscrossing the city. In the meantime, this is the Tour de Cosse, recorded by me, Lionel Burney, and Simon Gill. The series was produced by Tom Wally, and our thanks as ever to Sam Slatter, our broom wagon driver, for his support. Scottish League Premier Division, Aberdeen 2, Kilmarnock 0. Celtic 5, Morton 1. And the United against Motherwell, evening kick-off at 7.30. Kibernian 0, Rangers 0. St Mirren 0, Dundee 0. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.